Father, we thank you for this grace, um, a grace that truly does strengthen us in ways that go beyond our comprehension. And I know, Father, that there are so many of us that have gathered here today, and that's exactly what we need. We need strength that only comes from your grace. So God, help us in this moment to be vulnerable in your presence and to cry out for your grace. God, help us to look to you for it, knowing that you freely give as you have shown us through your Son. God, I pray that your grace would be all-encompassing today. It would overwhelm our hearts, our souls, our minds, that it would fill this room and this place. And we wouldn't be able to escape your presence. God, as we turn to your word, as we turn to a greater understanding of this world, how you made it, who you fashioned us to be, help us to see the workings of your grace, the way that you made us, the way that you formed us in your image, the way that you've given us certain responsibility, that everything we offer with our lives, every breath, would be an outpouring and expression of a love and a devotion to the grace shown us from you through Jesus. So be with us now, Holy Spirit, come and fill this time, fill this place. To you be the glory, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. Now, what a fun way to uh, worship together this morning uh, in song and prayer and baptism. Uh, I pray and trust that it has been encouraging to you so far this morning. Uh, I've told you before, uh, my wife loves plants. Okay, so if you don't know that, then just come over to our house and you'll see our house just filled with plants. And uh, that's the sign of her love and her uh, borderline obsession with plants. And she has often said that you can have a good understanding of how she's doing in life by looking at her plants. Um, If the plants are withering and they're struggling and they're barely hanging on, that's a good indication that she's feeling a little overwhelmed. Uh, a little busy, a little chaotic, a little distracted, whatever it may be, and the plants are are, uh, suffering as a result. Similarly, if you come into our house and you see these plants are flourishing, they're thriving, they're vibrant, they're cultivated, they're well cared for, then you can have a good sense that Jennifer is probably in a good spot where she's feeling uh, rested and focused and fulfilled and has the opportunity, the space and time to care for them. And so there's tends to be somewhat of a direct correlation between how Jennifer's doing and how our plants are doing. Kind of like E.T., now that I think about it, for those of you that watch E.T. Anyway, sorry, that one just popped in there. Uh, but anyway, the point is, is that she goes through seasons like we all go through seasons, right? Where there are seasons where it feels like we're just barely hanging on. Uh, it, it feels like we're withering to a certain extent. We're disillusioned. We're overwhelmed. And then there are seasons where it feels so much better. It feels like we're, we're flourishing, we're vibrant, we're, we're feeling fulfillment and satisfaction and all these different things, right? We're either surviving or we're thriving, right? We're either barely hanging on or we're flourishing. And I'm curious this morning, what season are you in? Uh, you don't have to acknowledge it by raising your hand or anything like that, but just ask yourself or answer this question. Would you say you're in a season of just surviving? Right? You come here today and you just find yourself kind of barely hanging on, doing what you can just to kind of make it through, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling disillusioned, or how many of you would say, no, actually this is a season of flourishing, this is a season of fulfillment, things are going really, really well, I feel energized, I feel happy, I feel content. We all recognize that there are different seasons of either surviving or thriving, kind of holding on or flourishing, and I'm curious where you find yourself this morning. 
And, and I'm also curious, how do you answer that question? Like, what I mean by that is, what factors influence your answer to that question? Right? What, what is the metric that determines whether or not you feel a sense of flourishing or just merely surviving? Right? For some of us, we answer that question based on our relationships. Right? We, we think about our marriage. If our marriage is in shambles or it's struggling, then we are instinctively going to feel that way as well. We think about it from uh, our children, right, or our parents. Like if, if our kids aren't doing well, it doesn't matter if everything else is going great in our life, but if our kids aren't doing well, then it's hard for us to feel like we're flourishing. A lot of times we have a sense of whether we're surviving or thriving just based on our relationships, or our family. Sometimes we look at it through the lens of experiences. Right? If our life is filled with the mundane and the repetitive and it's just get in the car and go to work and come back home and get in the car and go to work and come back home and it's just this mundane repetition, it's going to be hard for us to feel like we're actually thriving in any capacity. So we need to infuse our life with these experiences. Right? We, want to, we want to go. We want to travel. We want to have adventures. We want to experience new things, go to concerts, go to games, whatever it is. And when our life is filled with those things and those experiences, now all of a sudden it feels like, oh, we're, we're flourishing. We're living life to the fullest, right? So sometimes it's relationships, sometimes it's experiences. I would imagine that for the bulk of us, a major factor and metric that influences our answer to that question of surviving or thriving tends to be our work, right? Or our school, which is really preparation for work. And what kind of fulfillment and contentment and meaning that we're deriving from our jobs, our careers. And one of the reasons that is such a large factor is because we spend the majority of our time working in some capacity. Right? I mean, numerous hours a day given to work. And, and so a lot of times, if work is going well, man, we feel like we're flourishing. If it's not, then we feel like we're just barely hanging on and surviving. And, and what we see right now is that in our country, a lot of folks are increasingly unsatisfied or dissatisfied with work. Uh, there is a research survey that was done by Pew Research in March of 2023 that indicates around 51% of the U.S. American workforce does not find uh, a strong sense of satisfaction in their jobs or in their careers. And, and so you've got about half of the American workforce that would say, no, I don't find my career, my profession very satisfying at all. And so we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of people shifting what they're doing for work. Um, in fact, there was another study that, that was shown in a Harvard Business Review not too long ago, I think it was also in 2023, that in 2021, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor and Statistics, in 2021, 47 million Americans uh, voluntarily resigned from their position at work. They, they just quit. They just changed jobs. And there are a lot of different factors that contributed to this. This became known as what a lot of folks have referred to as the great resignation, right? Just a massive shift. Uh, this is also kind of now being talked about in terms of quiet quitting where people don't find fulfillment and they kind of want to be forced out and want to have this change. And so what's contributed to this is, yes, a number of different factors. COVID seems to often be uh, a, a catalyst for it or something that accentuated this. But what the article says in the, in the Harvard Business Review is that this is a trend that's been going on for more than a decade, right? That we've seen this in, uh, steady increase in this sort of resignation and shifting in careers since 2009. And so one of the primary factors behind this is that we tend to struggle to find satisfaction and fulfillment in work, and we keep trying to look for it. And so what I want us to, to consider today is how we better understand work 
and how that speaks to whether or not we can truly flourish in life. And my hope is that as we walk through this conversation today, we have the opportunity to really reorient ourselves to a better understanding, a biblical understanding of work, especially in light of the image of God. Right? We've been going through this series uh, about the image of God. We've established why we even ask this question of existence and how we begin to work through it. We've, we've talked through the implications of it starting last week by saying that because we are made in the image of God, there's an inherent worth, there's an inherent dignity that we can acknowledge in ourselves and in others. And today we talk about what the image of God means for our understanding of work. And my hope is that we get a an opportunity to kind of have a whole different perspective that work is more than just your job, more than just your vocation, right? But it also actually includes your relationships. It actually includes your experiences, your interaction with the world as a whole. And so let me me put it together for you in another question. Let me phrase it slightly differently and not just are you surviving or thriving. Here's the question I want you to think about today. How are things in your corner of the world? This comes from Carmen Joy Imes and her work, uh, being God's image. How are things in your corner of the world? Are you reflecting the creator's desire to bring order that promotes the flourishing of creation? Right? Your life was given with an opportunity to bring about flourishing, not just within yourself, but in the world around you. That's your task. That's your work. And that's what we're going to look at today, is how do we bring about that flourishing and experience that flourishing because we're made in the image of God. So grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter one. Now we've been hanging out in Genesis chapter one and we've talked a little bit already about what it means to be made in the image of God. We're gonna finish reading chapter one today and then read excerpts of chapter two as a complement to what we're seeing here in chapter one and the implications of what it means to be made in God's image. And so pick up with me in verse 26 of chapter one. Uh, we're gonna read a, a pretty good chunk of scripture today. So let's Let's dial in and let's follow along, starting chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening And there was morning and there was the sixth day. Now skip down to verse 4 of chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now we're going to skip down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... 
You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave the names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Okay, we'll stop there. Okay, so let me tell you why I skipped over a couple of chunks of Scripture there. Uh, part of why I did this is because it, the, the, to work through Genesis with a line-by-line expositional diving into Scripture is incredibly enriching. It's incredibly uh, meaningful and impactful. But because we have tried to zero in on the subject of the image of God and the implications of being in the image of God, and specifically today, focusing in how that has impact on our understanding of work for the sake of time and clarity, I skipped over the seventh day of God's resting. I skipped over the rivers and, and the description of the Garden of Eden. Those are very important pieces of Scripture, um, but they're not going to directly inform our conversation today. So we're looking at this, this huge chunk that I just read to really kind of begin to focus in on how does this impact work. We've already talked about the implications of being made in the image of God in terms of worth and dignity. We're going to be talking about next week how it impacts our understanding of relationships and male and female. So, so a lot of things that we're working through, we're just trying to narrow our focus this morning. And so when we read that larger chunk of Scripture, here, here are some things that I want us to consider this morning. That when we read Genesis 1 and 2 with this sort of lens and perspective in place, we are going to look at the responsibility God has given mankind. We're looking at the provision that God has given mankind, and then the limitations within that responsibility and that provision. And once we have a good understanding and a grasp of those three things, we're going to be able to create a picture, paint a picture that helps us reorient our understanding of work and purpose and fulfillment that leads to flourishing in this world. Okay, so let's start with the responsibility. What we have here, right, is, is finally an opportunity to get a glimpse at the question of why did God make mankind? Right? When, you, when you think about what we've been talking about up to this point, we've really kind of been talking about how he made mankind, that he made us in his image. And that carries significant weight and implications. But now we get just a little bit of a glimpse. Why? Why did he do it? And right there in verse 26, we've been skipping over this for the last couple of weeks. Here's what he says. So that they may rule. Very interesting designation there. Rule over all the living creatures. Essentially, this idea of authority, this idea of ruling, this idea of responsibility is introduced as to one of the main reasons that God created mankind in his image. Now, this is further accentuated by the blessing in verse 28 and, and beyond, right? That, that once he has made all these things, that he then looks upon man and woman and he says, be fruitful, multiply, increase in number, fill the earth, rule it. Have dominion, subdue it. These are the language, these are the terms that are often offered in this blessing and in this translation. So you get an insight. Why did he make us but to rule, have dominion, to subdue, to fill the earth? And so while these terms all have slight differences and nuances and meanings, they, they more or less are communicating the same primary message. That just as we've been talking about the fact that we carry, carry God's image makes it, uh, means that we are a special creature, different than anything else, we now see that the reason we are a special creature is because we've been given special responsibility. 
Now, that's essentially what's being said. You, you have a special responsibility to rule and have dominion over this creation. Now, what in the world does that mean? There are significant implications to that, right? If God has created us to have this sort of rule and this dominion, what that implies is that creation was created in a way that it needed to be cultivated. It needed to be ruled. It needed to have dominion, right? He, he didn't create it with just um, this end in mind, this, this complete picture where nothing was needed. He created it with potential, a potential that needed to be cared for and harnessed and cultivated and, and ruled over by those he had made in his image. So, so Al Walter says it like this. He uses the comparison to a newborn baby. Right? He says in, in the same way, uh, the creation, in the same way that you would call a newborn baby good, uh, you would say the same thing towards creation, but everyone knows that, that newborn baby still needs to be changed, right? needs to be cared for. And, and that's more or less the imagery or the, the sort of comparison that he offers. And I like that because it makes sense, right? That when God creates everything, he says it was very good, but there was still things that needed to be done. There was still potential that needed to be made. And so in the same way that when a newborn child is born, we all celebrate and we go, look at this amazing creature. It's so good. And we celebrate its goodness. Never, hopefully, does anyone look at a newborn child and go, well, this kid can't even walk. Like, he, he can't even speak. Can we send him back and go ahead and get one that can do everything? Like, that's not how we react, right? You, you respond to the goodness, but you know that something needs to be cultivated out of it. And that's what he's created uh, with, with his world is something that is inherently good that he has shaped, but it needs to be cared for. It needs to be ruled over. It, it has the potential to be created and cultivated. We need to fill the earth. And so... So that idea of, of what does it mean to care for and, and ultimately steward and have this dominion over creation, uh, one of the ways that I've often tried to get a, a sense or a picture of this, I refer back to an illustration that I heard when I was in seminary. Dr. Uh, Mao, who was the president of Fuller Seminary when I was there, he taught a class and focused in on Genesis 1 to a great extent, and he really zeroed in on that word fill, right, to fill the earth. And he would ask us, he was like, what do you think that really means? And a lot of times when you read that passage, you tend to reduce that understanding of filling to uh, procreation, right? Which I would say is accurate and makes sense. When, when he's looking at Adam and Eve and he's like, be fruitful, uh, increase the number, fill the earth. That is speaking to the fact that Adam and Eve are going to have children who are going to have children and it's going to ultimately fill the earth. But filling the earth is more than just some biological procreation. Right, that grows in number. What, what Mao would challenge us with is the idea that filling the earth is about giving it meaning. It's actually creating culture. Right? It, it's, it's cultivating in a way that shows the goodness of God. Right? That you have this special responsibility and you need to steward it well and fill the earth and care for it in the way that God would care for it. Right? That, that ruling the earth and having dominion over the earth doesn't mean you get to exploit it Right? doesn't mean that you get to take advantage of it and just use it to your own benefit, but you care for it in the way that God cared for it. Right? That, that God created it towards goodness, and so our special responsibility is to care for it in a manner that leads to goodness, to fill the earth with goodness, with flourishing, with meaning. And so here is an example that, that Mao would often refer back to in his class. He would say, imagine Adam and Eve sitting there under a tree, and all of a sudden Adam has the impulse to work the ground. 
But all of a sudden he decides, I don't want to use my hands to work the ground today. And he looks up in the tree and he breaks a limb off the tree and he begins to fashion something at the end of the limb that looks like what you and I would call a rake. And now he's created something. He's created something that's going to help him now work in the soil to rake up leaves and to till the soil. And he's creating, he's filling the earth with meaning. He's filling the earth with culture. He's filling the earth in a way that cares for its own flourishing. And that's what it means to fill the earth. And so this idea of dominion, this idea of subduing, this idea of ruling is about caring for the earth in the same way that you would a child that leads it towards its own flourishing, its own goodness. And you fill it with that culture, that inherent capacity to create. Right? God has created us in his image, which means we are in some ways like his sub-creators. We have the ability to create culture and meaning and tools and technology and all these things that can contribute to the flourishing of the world around us. And that's ultimately what it means to have this sort of dominion in this rule. So a, a couple of implications for us today, okay, just to, to start at a high level here. Uh, how do you begin to work that out? I guess what I would say is care for the world. Care about the world, both on a macro and micro level, right? And so what I mean is, is that if God cares for it and he wants to cultivate it and lead it towards its goodness and its flourishing, then we should as well. And that, that's not like a political statement related to climate change or any of those things. I'm saying literally care for the benefit and the flourishing of the world, be that nature, be that civilization, be that culture, be that institutions, be that other people care about the world at a macro level. See, a lot of times the reasons we struggle to do so goes back to what we were talking about several weeks ago and this Greco-Roman influence that we have that has influenced our sense of identity where we see a spiritual world and a physical world. And we don't always see that they're connected. If, if our idea is that we are one day gonna be set free from the physical world and our souls just get to go float up in heaven in some spiritual eternal reality and the world just vanishes, then, then why care for the world? But what the Bible teaches is that, yes, they're spiritual and physical, but they are fused together. They are critically important that you should care for the world. It is his creation, and it has been entrusted to you as a special responsibility. Care for it. Cultivate it. Care about it in a very significant way. And you can do that not just at a macro level, but a micro level as well. Right? Think about your corner of the world and how you fill it with meaning. Right? How you contribute to flourishing in your world by the things that you do, be it the significant or the mundane. Right? The way that you, you fill the world with that sort of purpose and that sort of flourishing. What are you doing with your life to fill the world? And, and how are you demonstrating those sorts of things to the world around you? Stanley Grins uh, offers a great quote that I think puts this in a proper perspective. He says, we are the recipients of God's commands which entails a special responsibility. Our responsibility is connected to the biblical concept of dominion. God has entrusted us with a special task with reference to creation, namely that we serve as his representatives. We are to reflect to creation the nature of God. The creator has given this creation to humankind to manage, but our management has as its goal that we show to creation what God is like. Consequently, when we do not manage creation for our own purposes, but for the sake of the higher goal, namely, in order that we might serve as the mirror of the divine character. Right, so the way that you care for this world helps demonstrate to the world who this God is 
That's what it means to have that rule and dominion. And that doesn't have to limit you to the hours that you spend at a job or at a desk, but in all of your interactions with the world around you, be it your relationships, be it your experiences, be it your profession, your studies, whatever it is. How do I bring meaning and flourishing to the people around me, to the world around me? And so that's kind of the opening question, right? What are you filling the earth with? And are you filling it in a way that leads to flourishing. God has given you a special responsibility. But not only has he given us responsibility, the other thing that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that he's given us uh, provision. I I love this. There are three things that we see God provides for us in uh, these passages that we've read today. He provides food, a garden, and a helper. Now we're going to talk about the third one next week. Yeah, that's, that's where we're going. So we're going to reference it a little bit, but that's kind of ultimately where we're going to be going next week. So we're going to focus a little bit more on the fact that he provides food and a garden, right? And so uh, think about this. God has given you responsibility, but he also is going to provide for you in the, in the caring for that responsibility. And the first thing that he, he references is that he's given you food. Now, this is interesting because in almost every reference that we find in Genesis 1 and 2 related to rule and dominion and work, it is followed by, and then God gives you food. Isn't that interesting? And, and this speaks to, again, how he's created nature, right? So when he gives us every seed-bearing plant, every fruit-bearing tree, all those different things that are good for food and all the living creatures, what's interesting is that when you go back to when those things were created, he didn't just make all those things magically appear. He said, now let land produce vegetation and fruit. Right, so he creates land with the capacity to create, just like he creates you and me with the capacity to create. And so the land is what produces this food, and because the land produces this food, what it does is it creates a dependency that we have on creation in the same way that creation has a dependency on us. Right, the the energy that you're gonna need to survive, to do your work, the food that you're gonna need to do all those things is gonna come from the very land that you're caring for. Right? And so in order for you to do your work, you're going to have to depend upon the land. And yet the land is dependent upon you to do your work because it needs to be ruled, it needs to be cultivated, it needs to be cared for. And so there's this mutual dependency, this understanding that you need provision. Right? You need to be provided for in order to achieve this work. It's, it's not um, insignificant that this shows up in the Lord's Prayer when Jesus says, pray also that you would be given your daily bread. Right? Understanding God as a provider, which is really kind of what uh, I think is accentuated with the fact that he doesn't just provide food, but he provides a garden. This one to me is really interesting. Okay, and so we, we see this reference to the garden, and we see it referenced first in 2.8, I believe, and then again in verse 2.15. And when you read those verses, they seem somewhat unassuming, uh, maybe just informational, but there's really quite a bit to understand about God's provision, right? He gives us food, but then he, then he puts man in the garden. And that word put is really significant. What's happened here is that the author has not chosen the more common expression for the word put or to place. He's actually chosen a word that has a, a much richer meaning. It's a word that typically is associated with being uh, placed in the midst of rest and safety or placed in the presence of God like something that is dedicated, put in the presence of God for dedication. And so when, when God puts man in the garden, what is being implied there with the language and the way that it's described is that he is giving man the opportunity in the midst of this responsibility to rest 
and find safety in his presence. That's incredibly important for us in our understanding of work. Right, that, that there's this, this rhythm that helps us understand that yes, though we have been given a tremendous responsibility and we are, we are made to work, we also need to recognize the value of resting and finding safety in the provision and the presence of God. Right, we see this played out over and over again. Right, we see this accentuated in the Exodus. Right, that, that essentially what God is trying to say is that you are not just the sum of what you produce and what you can create and the work that you put in. Right, so the people of God, Israel, they are, they are in bondage. They are in servitude with uh, Israel to Pharaoh. Right, and they are in this endless cycle of productivity and producing, producing, producing. And God sets them free from that, draws them out of that. And in the Exodus, what does he say? Rest. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And when they are looking for food and they go out and they try to find something for that provision, he says, you can gather this manna, but just for a day. Not more than what you need for today. And what he is teaching them is to depend upon his provision. To rest in understanding that he is the one that ultimately provides. So what that means for you and me is that you are not the sum of your job and your career. Right? Like, like this, is, this provision guards you from being obsessed with work, being consumed and shaping too much of your identity by, by jobs and careers and tests and all those other things, but to rest in his provision, to trust and God being a provider for you in this responsibility. Again, Carmen Joy Imes puts it together in a very meaningful way. She says, when we are diligent to bring order to our corner of the world, those around us have space in which to flourish. God has given us good work to do, and that brings satisfaction, but ultimately our value is not tied to what we can produce. Our work does not define us, and it should not consume us. Sabbath rhythms remind us to rest in God's provision and guard against obsession with work. Ask yourself if you're obsessed with what you do. Do you have the appropriate rhythm that isn't just consumed with the idea of producing, but actually finds value and identity and resting in the provision of God? And do you have that appropriate mixture and balance? Now, the other thing that we see here in the garden that begins to really reorient our understanding of work and expand our horizons that, that helps us see that it's more than just the hours we put into an office is the fact that when God puts man in the garden, he does so that man can't work it and care for it. Now, this is, pretty, this is pretty interesting to me because it's referenced earlier, I think in verse 6, where, where again, the author is talking about the ground and how the, the waters underneath the surface are watering the ground, uh, but there was no one there to work it, right? And so now he, he forms man out of the ground, breathes life into his nostrils, then he puts him in the ground, puts him in the garden to, to work it. And so part of what I want us to see is that before the fall, you were created to work, right? That life in the garden wasn't just leisure days off and endless vacation, right? Like, we were inherently created to work. Like it is in our nature to work as part of it, right? 
And so what does that look like? Well, these terms help us get a great picture that reorients our understanding of work to something more than just the titles that we carry and the jobs that we are employed with, right? And so um, these two words, to work and to care for, uh, can also be translated as to serve or to obey, to guard, to protect. And, and these are often words that are used in the context of worship and religious ceremonies and practices, especially the Levitical responsibilities of the priests, the Levites, right? So these are, these are very much religious terms. And so what you can see is that this Hebrew word for work is actually also used in many times towards servanthood, towards God. I'll never forget the first time that this really resonated with me. Um, I was in class at the University of Oklahoma, Boomer, and uh, I was sitting there in class and I was in modern Hebrew. Now, the reason I was in a modern Hebrew class at OU is because my degree required both an ancient and modern language. Now, ironically, my ancient language was modern Hebrew. Figure that one out. But either way, I was in modern Hebrew and my professor gets up there and he writes the word, I think one of us had asked, hey, what's the Hebrew word for worship? And he wrote the word, I think it's a vod, if I'm not mistaken. And he writes it up there, and as he's talking to us about it, he goes, you know, the, the root here for this Hebrew word is also the same root for servant. And that blew my mind, right? That the, that the idea of worship and servanthood share the same root in the Hebrew. And that should totally reorient our understanding of both work and worship, right? That the work you were created to do was, was really designed to be an act of servanthood towards God and towards others, right? Like you were created, the work you're created to do is to worship and to fill your life with that kind of servanthood that cares for and guards for the things that God cares for and guards for as well. And similarly, it should totally redefine your understanding of worship, right? The worship is so much more than singing and the songs that you like but actually creating a lifestyle of servanthood and work towards God, right? To filling the world with his image, with his glory, with his presence. That's what it means to work, right? And so there are some significant implications when we begin to see what God has provided us, right? He's provided us food, he's provided us a garden, and in the garden we get an understanding of what it means to both work for him and rest in his presence. So we have responsibility, we have provision, but we also have limitations, right? Now the limitations are pretty interesting because here we are in, the, in this uh, middle of this beautiful story God's created all these incredible things and repeatedly he's called it good and now he's placed mankind in the garden for them to work and then what do we see? God looks upon it and he says, this is not good. It's not good for man to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. Now, we're gonna get into that next week. But what I want to, to borrow from this week is to show you, right, that this responsibility was not intended to just be for you. It was actually intended to be shared, right? It, it's, it's a shared responsibility. It's a responsibility that is going to be practiced in community, in relationship. It's not good for it just to be for yourself, right? This combats uh, the idea that you can do it all, right? Just try harder, just take it on. No, you need help. You need to work alongside people not just for yourself. There are limits to what you can do. 
God sees those limits. You are not to function in this world in loneliness, but in community. There are limits to how this works. Now, the other aspect to the limitations that you see in these pages of Scripture that are really interesting is how that, that balance between having this responsibility from God and this provision from God begins to work itself out, right? Because ultimately, what, what we see is that there's got to be this combination, this, this partnership, not just with uh, one another, but even with God, right? God is sharing his responsibility, he, he is sharing his responsibility by entrusting us to have rule and dominion. We're going to do the same. And in sharing that responsibility with one another, we're still in a relationship with God. And so how does that work itself out? Well, interestingly enough, one of the best ways to get our minds wrapped around that is by looking at what happens next. One of the first projects, one of the first specific roles and responsibilities that God entrusts to mankind with the naming of the animals. Right? So, so here's what God does. He brings Adam all the animals and he has him name them. This is pretty significant. There's, there's a lot that we can learn from this. Because anytime you name something, that implies that you have authority. You have power over that which is being named. And so the fact that he's naming the living creatures that God has said that he's going to rule is just further accentuating this idea that mankind has dominion. Right? But notice this balance. Because up to this point, when you read the first few pages of creation, Genesis chapter 1 through verses 1 and, 1 and 10, God does all the naming. It's God who names the light, uh, or the, 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 uh, the light uh, day or the day light. And he's the one that names the darkness night. He's the one that names the dry ground land and the waters seas. He's the one that is calling all these different things by name. And it could have been very easy for God to have created all the living creatures and give them all their name. But he doesn't. He shares that power. He shares that responsibility to mankind, right? And he gives it to mankind in such a way that it is not just this passive obedience where he's saying, all right, here's all the names that you need to use. Just read these off the page, and you now have to name the animals what I'm basically telling you to do, right? He actually gives mankind the freedom, the creative freedom to name these animals, right? And so here's how this works, right? There is a creative power. There's a creative authority. There's a creative rule and dominion that we have by being entrusted with this responsibility. He generally wants mankind to name the animals, whatever is, whatever is in your mind, name it them, right? And so you have this power, and yet you didn't create the animal. God did. So there are limits to what power and responsibility has actually been entrusted to you, right? You, you don't have the right just to do whatever you want. There's still a certain limitation. You can't do everything, and God has demonstrated that by even just the naming of the animals. I'm going to give you certain responsibility, but don't lose sight of the fact that I'm the one that ultimately created these animals. So it's not just passive obedience, doing everything God has said, but it's also not dependent of God, independent of God either. And now the other thing that you see is the power of how we fill this world with meaning through our words, through the words that we say, right, the, the language that we use. It's really remarkable to that, and Christopher Watkin, who I've referenced on several occasions, helps us to see uh, the significance of, of naming and the significance of using language. He says, language expresses and forms a world. To name something is to call it out from the flux of the world as a figure, not just as a background. It is to recognize in it the dignity of identity, and this is the task and the privilege that God sets before Adam. 
And so by giving him the responsibility to name the animals, he's saying you were now given the power and the opportunity to assign dignity to creation, to offer meaning and identity to that which has been created. That is a remarkable responsibility. And that's part of what you and I are entrusted with even today. Watkin continues, language expresses and forms a world. To use a particular language is to live in a particular world. This is also a reason for Christians, wherever practicable, to use biblical language to describe the world. The Bible's categories of creation, sin, grace, idolatry, and so on are not neutral and interchangeable with other sets of terms. They are particular figures that belong to and provide the rhythm of the Bible's account for reality. So when you fill the earth with meaning, right, what Watkin is saying is that you should have a clear understanding of how the biblical reality is at place, and we should use certain terms that help identify dignity and others and worth and meaning and purpose in this world, and to use it according to the Scripture, right? To, to let the Scripture in our words understand and let the Scripture define what is grace, what is meaning, what is creation, what is purpose, like to, to use these things because that's what shapes our understanding of the world and how we fill it with meaning. And so think about the words that you use and how are your words leading to flourishing for others and for this world, right? If you package all of this, let me give you one final definition of work that I think helps bring it to certain clarity. This is from Dorothy Sayers. It's a pretty well-known quote. She says, the biblical doctrine of work is the gracious expression of creative energy of the Lord, right? So, So let me just break that down first before I finish the quote. Biblical doctrine of work says you have this power to create, to fill the world, right? Uh, to, to fill it with a certain creative energy, to produce something, to, to give it meaning, be it through the, the skills and the talents you have or the words that you can use. And once you do so, you should do so in the service of others to create shalom. That's how she finishes the quote. So, so this work that you've been entrusted with is there to give to the service of others, that you can promote shalom or flourishing, peace. So let me ask you again, think about your corner of the world. And are you living out this responsibility that is dependent upon the provision of God and limitations that accentuate his presence that you can provide meaning and flourishing to those around you? That's your task, right? So God has given you what? responsibility, provision, and limits. Let me, let me try to bring it all together and paint a picture for you for what I think this looks like. Um, really what we're talking about at the end of the day is power. Now that word power kind of carries a certain discomfort, right? What do we mean by that? Sometimes when we think about power, we, we think about it in an uncomfortable way because we know that oftentimes it can be abused, it can be misused. But when you're talking about um, the fact that God has created you in his image, to rule and have dominion, to subdue, to fill, to work. He is entrusting you with power. And so when you go through your life and you work in the significant or the mundane, you are exercising a God-given power that has been entrusted to you. Right, so like for me, when I'm at my actual job, and I'm researching and I'm reading things about the image of God and I'm like, man, there's a lot of stuff here. And then I try to figure out a way to to mold it and form it into a message to try to bring to you, right? That is 
my work in a very traditional sense. And it is a reflection of a certain power, and I mean that in a, in a good way, that God has entrusted to me that I have the chance to exercise in a way that hopefully leads to flourishing. Similarly, in a mundane task at home, right, let's say there's a storm that comes through and knocks down, I don't know, 500 tree limbs in my front yard, right? There is now chaos that exists. Work needs to be done. And when you spend the afternoon pulling those broken branches and cutting them up and laying them on the curb so that they can be taken away and you bring order back in this mundane task, that's a certain power that has been entrusted to you that now brings that sort of order that can promote flourishing, cultivating, caring for the world around you, right? And so this is all an exercise of power, be it be it small, be it great, be it insignificant or the mundane, we all have been entrusted with a work that demonstrates what are you doing with this power that has been entrusted to you. Well, it's Andy Crouch who uses this idea of power in a very meaningful way. I'm borrowing from his book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Here's how he defines it, and I think this helps us get our minds wrapped around how this works itself out in everyday life. He says, what then is power? May I begin with a deceptively simple definition Power is the ability to make something of the world. This is our basic task, preoccupation and quest. To make something of a world that comes with no ready explanation, yet it seemed to nearly every human being to throb with meaning. When power is used well, people in the whole cosmos come more alive to what they were meant to be. Because power is for flourishing. Flourishing is the test for power. So if you want to find fulfillment in your work, if you want to find meaning in, in what you're doing as a career or what you're doing at home, you acknowledge and you reevaluate, and what is what I'm doing, creating the space for flourishing? Am I using whatever power God has entrusted to me to enrich this world, to enrich these relationships, to enrich these experiences, to enrich my job, whatever it is, with meaning and flourishing? And if you begin to think that way, what you begin to realize is it doesn't really matter what you do. I mean, to a certain extent, as long as you're not advocating for evil or something along those lines, that, that even if you find yourself in a job that you feel like is so pointless and you're so unfulfilled, God has still put you there to be around people that allows you to work and serve in a way that can lead to a flourishing. Whether that's in a career or taking uh, something in your regular day and your regular task and promoting order by using that power that creates space for flourishing and order and cultivation of this world, that's where you find meaning. That's where you find significance. Changes your whole view of what it means to work. Right now, here's the problem. The reason so many of us struggle with this even though this was God's design and it's, it's what beats and, and, and exists within us and what we long for, the reason we struggle with it is because of the fall. Because now we live in a broken world where work is not always good, work is not always pleasant, this power, this responsibility is not always stewarded well, but it can actually be abused. Right? If, if power is assigning meaning to the world and, and creating opportunities for flourishing, then powerlessness, right, or to be powerless means to be denied the opportunity to create that meaning in the world. 
right? To, to not have a voice to shape and create flourishing and to use what God has given you to reflect God's image. And so how many moments throughout the course of human history can we point to people that have been in positions of power and taken that power from others based on their race, their gender, their socioeconomic status, or, or any other variable or factor that they determined necessary. And they robbed people of the opportunity to fill this world with meaning. Now, why do we do this? Right? Why does this happen? Well, I think the reason we struggle with this, it really depends upon our understanding and our view of power. And the reality is, is that when you think about God's work and the power that he's entrusted you to have on this creation, you're either going to view it as a gift or a commodity. And more often than not, because of the fall, because of our fleshly nature, we tend to view it as a commodity. Right? And when it's viewed as a commodity, and what I mean by that is that it's something that you need to possess, that you need to have, that you need to protect and keep for yourself. When you do that, then that's going to inevitably lead to competition, right, or consumption. Right? So, so if I see power as a commodity, then I'm going to do everything I can to keep it for myself and make sure you don't get it. And this isn't just something that nations do. Right, towards other nations or toward other people. Like, we do this in our own relationships. We do this in our marriages. Right? Let me be in control. Let me have the right to orient this world and this home the way that I need it. And if you challenge me on that, then you're threatening my power. And if I have to surrender my power, then I lose some of it and I give it to you. And then I could lose my opportunity for meaning. And we see it as a commodity that has to be competed for. Or we fall into aimlessness because we just consume it. We see the creative display of power and creative energy out of, out of others and what they can do, and we just begin to consume it and never utilize it within ourselves, right? So we, we, we just uh, build upon the music that somebody else can create, the work that somebody else can create, and we just consume, consume, consume to create as much convenience as we possibly can and rid ourselves of any sort of sacrifice, any sort of hardship, any sort of real work, and in the end, we feel aimless because power is something I just purchase, right? So when we see it as a commodity, it's gonna lead to either competition or consumption, and that's gonna create all sorts, all sorts of conflict and ultimate a, a sense of dissatisfaction. But here's what's amazing about the biblical understanding of power and responsibilities. We see it displayed here in Genesis 1. Power can be shared and it can grow. When God entrusts this responsibility and power to mankind, he didn't lose any. Right? It, it, it wasn't taken from him. It was shared. Right? When, when you use power in a way towards flourishing, what you discover is that shared power creates more flourishing. You don't have to be worried with the threat of losing it, but when you share it and you work in partnership and you work in community, that's the sort of work that leads to flourishing. Let me give you an example, right? This is probably the best example that I've been able to come across, and again, this is borrowing from Andy Crouch. Um, take music. Right, so take all these things we talked about. God creates, none of us created music. Like, he created the notes. Right, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Do, Re, Mi, Fa, So, La, Tito. Right, something like that. I got a thumbs up. Right, he creates the notes. And then he gives us the opportunity to create with the notes. 
right? And, and so now he's created you with this capacity as this sub-creator to, to take those notes and make something with it. And you could actually arrange those notes in a unique way to make a song, and that's flourishing. Now, you could take that song and just use it for yourself, but what if somebody else wanted to learn how to do that as well? And let's say you teach someone how to also make a song. When you teach them how to make that song, you don't lose that power to make a song. It's not a commodity that you now have to hand over, that they now get from you. You're sharing it with them, and when you share it with them, they now have power. That power is shared, and they can fill the earth with a new song, and more meaning, and more creativity, and more flourishing. So whether it's music, or fishing, or engineering, or servant, whatever it is, when you give yourself to the work and use this power that promotes flourishing and you share it with others in that servanthood, that's when you begin to really understand what God has created you to do. And so let me, let me close with this, right? What, what, is, what does all this look like? At the end of the day, as we've said almost every single week through this series, it looks like Jesus. You want, a, you want a picture of what human flourishing looks like, how to have that perfect mixture of understanding the responsibility of what it means to be made in God's image and the dependency upon God's provision and the limitations of this earthly nature and this earthly power. Look no further than Jesus. You wanna know what it looks like to live your life in such a way to work tirelessly in the servanthood towards others that promotes their well-being, that promotes their flourishing, that promotes order to a chaotic world, look to Jesus. He's the example. And when we make him our example, what we begin to discover is that we stop looking to this world to give us the meaning we so desperately crave. Rather, instead, we recognize we have been trusted with the incredible opportunity to give meaning to the world by following the image of our creator, this image that is fully revealed in Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, what we begin to see is the true demonstration of power that our hearts really long for, right? Jesus takes us back to a greater understanding of how this story both begins and ends. When we reduce the gospel to simply Jesus died for your sins, while that is incredibly true, it is so much more than that. What Jesus came to do was to reconcile and redeem you, your heart, your soul, your body, and this world. That yes, there is creation that allows us to find rest and peace and presence and safety with God. And there is going to be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth that allows us to find rest and peace and safety with God for all eternity. True power is resurrection power. And when we anchor our lives in that and give ourselves to that, and that's our work, that's when we discover all that our hearts long for and begin to experience for ourselves and the world around us ultimate flourishing. May that be our goal and our focus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you so much. God, we can confess there are so many times we come before you um, and we're just trying to make it. 
We're just trying to survive. And so much of that, God, comes from a, a misguided understanding of what you've created us to do. So God, help us to, to correct those things, to, to die to those things that try to find meaning from the world as opposed to giving meaning to the world. God, help us from falling into that trap of being obsessed with work and just what we can produce and what we can make without a clear understanding of your provision and our own limitations. God, help us from, from seeing these responsibilities that you've entrusted to us and this power that you've given us. Help us to guard against seeing it as some sort of commodity that we need to possess and compete with others for but something that can be stewarded and shared so that we can demonstrate and cultivate this world around us and assign meaning to it and care for others. God, help us to live in such a way that promotes such flourishing. God, we know that none of that happens if we look within. None of that happens if we look around. It only happens when we turn our eyes upon you. God, we thank you for Jesus that shows us what this sort of flourishing looks like, shows us the sort of work that we give ourselves to. And so help us this morning to fix our eyes upon our Savior and our King. For it's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.